9, as we continue through this book, we uh, mentioned uh, last week that chapters 8, 9, and 10 kind of all go together as Paul is dealing with Christian freedom, what it is, what it is not. And uh, so in chapter 8, we dealt with uh, these people. Well, I think this was our review. I think we deal a little bit with it here. Christianity isn't just about our freedom in Christ. It is about serving each other for the good of the kingdom. And so in chapter 8, Paul talks about these who knew that idols were not anything, that there were no false gods were anything, that meat offered to idols meant nothing and were free to eat it. But they were if trying to get the weaker brothers and sisters, those who didn't quite understand some of these things, to do something that was against their conscience. So they knew truth, they were not practicing truth in a Christian way, and therefore they were, in a sense, the weaker brother. What makes one strong in a godly Christian is not how much you know, but how well you use it. It is a matter of the heart before it is ever seen in words and actions. So, you know, Christianity is loving God with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul, and to help others there too. And so, Christianity is not just understanding doctrine, as important as that is. It is the proper use of that in a way that serves both God and the church. The strong Christian, therefore, keeps us focused on Christ, not necessarily issues, certainly not differences that the Bible does not speak to. A weak Christian will focus on issues and miss the big picture. The picture. And that's why, again, sometimes the weaker Christian is uh, the one who uh, doesn't realize that it is all about Christ and the gospel and try to make differences and issues, you know, drinking or gambling or this or that, things that aren't necessarily unimportant, but they're issues. They're, they're, they're part of the overall picture, but they're not the picture. And so we want to be careful in some of these things. And so in chapter 9, Paul, Paul has already said, don't use your freedom in a way that hurts others. You Sometimes you have to give up your freedom. And so in chapter 9, Paul is going to give us an example of where he has done that very thing. And so as you read through this chapter, we realize pretty quickly that Paul has not changed subjects. He has brought up the matter of his support as an example of what he has given up for the sake of of his brothers and sisters. So what he's going to say here is that as an apostle, he has the right to be supported by the churches, but he feels for him, he has given up that right because he feels like it would be a burden, it would be not helpful in his situation. So no one can say that, well, you know, you're telling us to give up our rights for somebody else, but you haven't done it. You know, Paul has given us an example where he is not only Giving up his right, but not just as you know, eating meat offered to idols that is really not that important to start with. He's given up his support, where he has had to be continue to be a tent maker many times to get support. So it's a big thing. But as he gives us an example of a pretty big act of self denial. He also, in doing this, and of course this is the beauty of God's word, it sometimes teaches us several things going on in one passage. He 
gives us uh, some principles on supporting those who minister the word of God to the church. Now let me say from the beginning, uh, I am very grateful for the way this church has taken care of Sandra and I, and I do not have any complaints about that. And uh, so that makes this much easier, because we don't have a problem in this particular aspect of it. But that's the great thing about going through the books of the Bible verse by word, verse, that I am compelled to preach on every subject that's in the text, um, and so that no one can say, well, you're just picking this out because it's self-serving to you. No, this is what the Word of God says. We're at it at this point in our study, and so we gladly preach everything the Bible teaches us because we know that if it's preached properly, it'll always be a good and blessed thing for us to know. But it's, as I said, it is much greater joy to speak on this when we don't have problems as opposed to if it was a problem in our church. One day I won't be here. And so it's important not only for the church, but especially for our younger people, for instance, to understand their obligation as a church so that when their day to lead, uh, the church comes, they're able to the next guy who comes up there, he's taken care of as well. And so there are two principles in this passage. The one about Christian liberty and uh, how we uh, use that in relationship to each other, but also in passing, we might say, a, uh, some lo- a look at uh, the support of the minister. With that said, Paul gives us an example of things he has forgone as he also lays on us our responsibility in these matters. And so if they are his right, and this is something we want to impress upon us because we'll see later, some actually use this text as an excuse not to pay the pastor. So as typical, you can make the Bible, or in your mind, say the exact opposite of what it's actually saying. But if Paul... If, if, if the church isn't obligated to pay those who minister to them when they're able, then Paul really isn't giving up anything, right? But the very fact that he is using this as an example of something that he is giving up for their sake, then means that clearly it is a biblical principle that you support those who uh, preach and minister the word of God to you. So I want to say that from the start, then I think we'll see it as we continue on. And so in verse 1, he begins by saying that he is free, uh, and, and uh, there, the question is free in what? Well, we know that he's free, that he's a Roman citizen, he's not a slave, so he's free in that sense. He's certainly free, as in chapter 8, he's free to uh, to live as a Christian, he's free as we'll see here, to receive support. We'll see also another example, he's free to be married, which is probably, a, he brings that up as another thing that he has given up for their sakes as well. He has freedom to, to do or have certain things as a Christian, and he has uh, certain freedom as an, as an apostle to have certain things. As a free citizen of the Roman Empire, he has great liberty. But notice in verse 19, he tells his readers that in spite of his freedom, he has made himself a slave to all men. And again, going back to chapter 8, we know that no matter what our station in life is, 
if we're in the kingdom of God, there is a king that we are to serve, and that being great in the kingdom is to serve others. And so Paul is giving us a, a the great mindset of being a faithful Christian is I realize that I am not here to serve myself. I am here to also serve others. Life is not just about me. And so Paul makes that very clear here. Now I think when he says I am free, he's probably also saying this a little sarcastically because he's echoing what he said those people were saying in the Corinthian church in chapter 8. I'm free to do as I please. I have rights. And, and Paul's saying here, well, yes and no. Because you don't have the right to do anything contrary to God's word or that is um, harm, harming your brothers or sisters, right? So, again, we got to be careful to read this not as Americans who have individual rights we're in the kingdom of God first and in that case we are slaves to Christ and to a degree to one another and the, you know and if, and if, as an American that doesn't sit well with you you have two options you can leave and you can just go and do your own thing or you can repent of your arrogance and, and submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because evidently you have it right and so, more so with Paul as an apostle, who would assume more consideration because of who he is and what he's doing, he certainly cherishes his freedom, but he cherishes other things more. He cherishes the fact that he's able to uh, start churches and to help Christ build the kingdom. And so he says, I'm free too, but look what I'm doing with my In verses 2 and 3, he gives two proofs of his apostleship. He has seen the resurrected Lord, I think not only at, on the road to Damascus, but while he was in the wilderness. I think he was taught of the Lord, those things. Uh, that certainly was a, to see the resurrected Christ was a requirement uh, to be an apostle, as we see in Acts chapter 2. And he's also been commissioned by the Lord to that work as well. So not just seeing him, but the Lord personally commissioned him to do that. And so these we know are non-repeatable. There are not there cannot be uh, new apostles uh, after the first century because Jesus Christ does not come to a select few and reveal himself to them and nobody else. He has come once, he has revealed himself uh, and he has commissioned the uh, the apostles to be the witnesses of that, to write it down. And this now is the record that we have and the, of Jesus Christ and his word to us. There's not other apostles out there who have uh, their own uh, visit with Christ and are giving new revelation. And that's important because we know there are those groups who think they have apostles and that creates all sorts of problems that there shouldn't be. It assumes that Jesus, no one will see Jesus personally until the second advent. Then when he comes, every eye shall behold him. And so this keeps us, from, among other things, from the red letter editions of the Bible. Uh, you know, if you have a red letter edition, that's fine. Uh, but it keeps us, we understand that, it, that those red letters, the words that, Jesus, that are, we're told Jesus actually said, are no more inspired or important than anything else, and what Paul is saying here. 
because even the red letters were given to us by the apostles as they were inspired to write them down. So they have no more authority than any other part of God's word because it's all God's word. Paul's an apostle. While there are some who refuse to accept Paul's authority, and this is going to come into play big time in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is defending his apostolic position. Certainly, the Corinthian church has no excuse for this. Um, but if the disciples' words are not as trustworthy, trustworthy as Jesus' words in red letters, then we really don't know if the red letters are true either, right? Jesus did a bad job of choosing his official witnesses because, and that's what he's saying, you know, later on, Paul will say some things about women in the church that have been rejected by others, right? They will Paul was a woman hater or whatever. Well, wait just a minute, because if the apostles got something, some of this wrong, then how do we know that they got anything right? How do we know that the Gospels are right? And so it, it just shows how uh, messed up we can get when we don't just take the word of the, all the word as God's word. There are actually some who believe that Paul is actually the 12th uh, disciple replacing Judas. Um, and there would be reasons for that. And, and uh, I won't argue that. But anyway, in verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, excuse me, in the wrong chapter, verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's not saying, he's not, I think, referring to chapter 8 and food offered to idols. Uh, otherwise, what does, why bring in drink? You know, is it talking about alcohol? No, I don't think he's talking about that. He's, uh, what he's saying is, he's referring to his support. In other words, we are we support by our paychecks. We get we are able to eat and drink, take care of the necessities. So that's what his the whole context is going to be. So he's saying, do we not have a right to receive support so that we can eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? There's a whole lot of things going on here, but in one sense that also refers back to support because Paul has given up his support for the sake of of the church, and because of that, then that might be one reason why he hasn't ever gotten remarried or married the first time, whatever the case might be, is because he doesn't have enough money to support a wife and to bring her along. And so, again, all these things kind of come into play. It's possible he's referring to the freedom of chapter 8, but in context here, I think he's talking of support. He, uh, In 1 Timothy uh, 5.17, he says pretty much the same thing he said here. But the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I think double honor probably refers to the fact that they are, first of all, received as teachers and therefore honored in their teaching. Listen to them, take it seriously, uh, uh, let them exercise oversight over the church. But the double would be they also are supported by the church who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves its wages. Uh, again, Paul refers to these things in our text as 
well. In Galatians 6, 6, one who is taught the word must also share, must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now the word all good things, I don't think he's, he's saying there that Christianity was never communal. We're not communist. The Bible doesn't teach communism. It doesn't say that what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Share everything. They did that in Acts to some degree, but remember they were under some, uh, Severe persecution. Things, people were being uh, losing their jobs, being cast out of the house, and all that kind of stuff. But when it says they must share all good things, in other words, this is not to be done stingily. It's not that well, we'll give something so we can just get along. No, to to give him so that he has what you have, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. So, in our text, in verse four. He, he says, do we not have the right to take on a believing wife or do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas as do, excuse me. So they were, they were being supported and they were, had uh, wives. Or, in verse 6, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, of course, this confirms the point he's making. Some see verse 5 as referring to to be supported so that they can take their wives with them, as they've already said, which I think has something to do with it. But it, and it has to at least be an application. But it certainly speaks to having one to begin with. And so the, the, the thing that of, our, of real interest of verse 5 is that he, he reminds us, he points out what some deny, that... First of all, the other apostles had wives. He also points out that Jesus had brothers, which is something, and that Peter had a wife. So, all of a sudden, we, we stop, because we know there's a history, of course, of the Catholic Church that has denied that Mary had other children, when clearly the Bible in many places said that she and Joseph had other children. And they have built, and, and then not only denying that, but they have built foundational doctrines on those things. You know, Mariolatry and the worship of Mary, praying to Mary, venerating her uh, away in, in a sense in which all the attributes that are given to Christ are given to Mary. And then of course you have the whole uh, idea of popery and that a uh, priest cannot be married. And again, it's not just an opinion or a, a tradition they have built foundational things upon that. But the stark thing is that it's clear here then that they deliberately are denying Scripture. They do not believe in sola scriptura, that the Bible is the final authority, but they add authority to the Bible. The traditions that uh, come out of nowhere that can't be supported from early the early churches and the ecclesiology that is the authority of the church. No, the Bible is the only source of uh, authority. And here we see that, that some people have been lied to. Jesus had brothers as well as sisters. And the, uh, the, the gospel accounts make that very clear. Peter, the first pope, which of course is not the first pope, but the first pope supposedly had a wife. And it couldn't be more clear. So on the one hand, 
then by bringing the support of wives into the mix and so families, he is implying that his support is worthy of his need and not just enough for him to straight by. In other words, they have given up their wives with getting married uh, because they are going to uh, work on their own. On the other hand, is the obvious failure, though, of, uh, as we said, of the Roman church to allow the scriptures to be their sole authority. And this is what causes many problems and something that you know, many of you came out of politics and realized this. So all this goes back to his reasoning in chapter 7. Remember where he talked about marriage and divorce, where he has not only given up financial support, but that means that getting married would be a problem as well because it would be difficult for to support a family. So he's, he's made the very decision that back in chapter 7 he recommended that perhaps there is there are times and reasons why you might not get married. It's fine if you do, it's fine if you don't. And he is backing that up as well. As early as the 4th century, one Sirius, considered by Rome to be a pope, said this, Marriage was an uncleanness of the flesh flesh in which no one could please God. And yet, Peter, the first supposed pope, was married. And so either Paul is lying to us, or he's no apostle and has no authority to write this because he's a liar. So here you got somebody early on saying that marriage is uncleanness of the flesh well, Paul has already told us that's not the case. Jesus has as well. So, you know, what do you got here? The other apostles evidently didn't support themselves, and Paul is merely saying that he and Barnabas have given up this right that they did not have to do. And so, again, that's his overall point. So while we're, we're kind of noticing some interesting things as we go through here, let's not forget the overall point. Paul is saying that my the decisions I make are based, first of all, upon obedience to the Lord and serving Him. And I also take into consideration how this affects the way I interact with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I feel like that's something that we need to be reminded of every once in a while, because I think very often we go through life, we're, we're buying, we're doing this, we're whatever, and we have no consideration of what it has to do with the church and, and my brothers and sisters. And you see here that Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. So starting in verse 7, he begins to lay down all the different ways to prove that those who work in the ministry of the church, especially the ones who minister the word, are to be supported. So he begins here uh, by saying, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say this of human authority? Well, verse, uh, verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? He's, he's just in nature. He says it's just natural that this you, you're supported for your work. The things that you labor for, you benefit from that. So he is proving that it is a legitimate right of his. And his first proof is that it is just natural, obvious. It, it's customary. It's just the way things are. Everyone else works and is supported by his work. Why would anyone assume that the pastor does not, for instance? I find it fascinating, I mentioned this earlier, that groups like 
some primitive Baptist, and many others who decided their pastors and those who minister the word to them must also work another job. They, they will not support them. They think they believe that you should also work outside of the church. And in some cases, they use Paul as an example. But one wonders about their motive, whether they'd be willing to work two jobs but only get paid for one. You know, it's funny that they, the pastors expected to do that, but they don't do that. Well, see, one of the reasons, I, I believe, is they believe it, it takes the motivation, but we'll deal with that in a moment. But that's probably always something good to remind ourselves if something that you stress others should do, if you're not willing to do it yourself, probably that you need to rethink your position. In verses 8 through 10, and he moves from the natural, obvious, you might say, uh, examples in nature, to remind us that even in the Old Testament law, God laid down these principles uh, that teach the same thing. As he talks about the uh, don't muzzle the ox, and you're using him to grind or something like that. And so he gives us a very new covenant use of the law. Is he saying that we are still required to not muzzle the ox today because we're still under the Old Testament law? Just because he quotes the law, does that mean that we're under the law? Well, no. But the principle is obvious. And one of the things, uses of the law for a Christian is to look at the principles, the way God thinks, the way God expects us to interact with each other, what is just and what is fair, right? Those are great principles from the word, from the law. <clears throat> By the way, the principle which God sets down for the Israelites there with the uh, Muslim, the ox, and other ones, um, are practiced and have been practiced for some time by successful businesses in our time, and it's known as profit share. If an auto worker, for instance, was only paid a certain amount of money per hour, he may lack the motivation to work hard and produce as many cars and have the quality they should, right? And so some, somewhere, somebody, maybe they got it from the Bible, I don't know, realize that if we have profit sharing, if we say, look, part of your pay is going to be based on your work, now all of a sudden, the whole attitude of that worker can change. No, they don't always change. Sometimes a bad worker is always going to be a bad worker, but for many it gives extra incentive. And certainly I have worked jobs where I had profit sharing and it meant something to me. And so he says in verse 10 that it is in the law, not because God is particularly concerned for animals, let's say it is not, but the, he gives that law about not muzzling the ox uh, not so much because he's worried that the ark will have enough to eat, but there's a principle here. There's a, a principle of fairness, of doing the right thing, of letting those who work for you share in that. I think we might say there's a principle here of a fair wage. And, and again, even in America, we know what happens, as much as I believe capitalism is a difficult concept, what happens when, uh, People uh, don't care about their workers. And Pittsburgh and the history of it, that's kind of where a lot of the things, unions and not things came from. And, and again, it was rightly so in many cases. So, 
It's it's not just because of his concern for the animals, but just like that Old Testament man would tend to expect the ox to work for him, regardless of how he's being treated. So today, and the Lord knew that, there are those who think that, well, I'm the boss, and you got to do what I tell you to do, and I don't care anything about you. And of course, you think about the whole system of, of what's going on in slavery, it just magnifies it all the more. I don't care anything about you. What you're doing is for me. And Jesus, and the, and the law is telling us, no, wait just a minute. There's still a boss. There's still laborers. The laborers cannot and should not expect to make what the boss makes necessarily, but there is to be a sense of fairness. So there's a whole social, I think, uh, quality to all this, if we would just stop and think about it. Certainly as Christians in business, these are things that we want to be careful of. Even if you're using animal food for your benefit, they should be treated decently and certainly allowed to eat if they're working around food all day. There's just all these, the whole system of fairness and justice um, that that we see here that Paul is drawing on and saying, look, uh, do you expect someone to come in and work for you and minister to you to share the word of God with you and then you don't really care about his physical needs? You're no different than the guy who had muzzled the ox. And let's face it, it's easy to fall into the mindset of letting others help you out and work for you, but completely miss the responsibility you have to help them to be fair to them. So while we must be careful to supply help even when we can't be paid back, yet on the other hand, when one serves you and one helps you, there's a sense of obligation that you should have. And, you know, if you, uh, and again, those are principles that we looked at when we went through the, the law of the Old Testament. If you cause somebody to lose a, a lot of money, then you should have some obligation to help them as much as possible to pay that back. Have you ever helped somebody, perhaps at your expense, that they had the attitude that, well, I deserve that. They didn't seem to be thankful. They didn't feel like any obligation to pay you back. Not, not that, you know, maybe you say, I don't want to be paid back, and that's great. But if you have the idea that I don't want to be paid back, and then you help somebody, and they take it for granted and aren't thankful, that, that doesn't, you know something's wrong, right? Again, the principle here. So if someone has been kind to you, there's a sense in which you are their debtor, at least in love and good works. Now, again, I'm not standing up here and saying that we want to be tit for tat. That, well, if I do this, I expect to be reversed, or I expect the same thing back. No, Christians can give. It's good to love people to give, to help, and not expect anything in return. But we're talking here about, you know, real issues that, you know, not someone's livelihood or things like that. And so in verse 11, he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So there's a principle laid out very clearly. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So then he applies it to the whole overall context. So here he connects the fact that this is the way it works in the physical world, but it also applies spiritually. And so therefore it also applies in the church. It's not only the way it works in the business world, but there's a sense, because we're talking about livelihood and, and work 
that it applies in the church as well. Some have the mindset that if a minister is paid, that it taints his work. It ruins his motivation. He kind of going back to what said about some of these other groups. That if we give you money, then you're preaching not just to minister to us for the glory of God, but you're also doing because it's a job. Well, yeah, both are true. You can't get away from that, but to say, well, you know what? We're not going to pay you because we don't want to interfere in your motivation is, I think, really self-serving. And it's contrary to God's word anyway. Paul says, not so fast. He's saying that one can be paid for services rendered and still do his job correctly, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to say this. The apostles were being paid, right? And of course, no one thinks like that when it comes to them being paid for work, right? It's always when somebody else's uh, livelihood is involved. Now, are there people in the ministry that are mostly concerned with making money? Unfortunately, that could be more obvious. Are there those that are in it just as a way to make a living? The, the church history is full of uh, early on of people entering the ministry, especially when it was supported by a state, because it was a way to make a good living. Yes, that's absolutely true. But as we've seen so often, that doesn't mean that we have a right. Of, of, we have to rewrite the Bible or develop our own reality just because some can sin in a certain way means that well we can't we got to abandon that altogether. No, this is the way the Bible has laid it out. What we do is not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We spot those who are have unworthy motive, and we get them out of the ministry because they haven't been called. Clearly, we saw in First Timothy chapter five, seventeen and eighteen. You know, Paul makes it very clear. They're to be supported the same way that everyone else is. So it's not a double standard where those in the ministry must take a vow of poverty while everyone else prospers. Which someone, you know, we've seen that all through history as well. But neither should one be expected to live well above the average in his flock. Now this is kind of just me saying some things based on the principles. I think that a, a pastor needs to be careful of being supported at the where, where his church is uh, suffering to support him to give him a certain level of lifestyle. I think a I think it's more it looks better for a pastor to be paid the average of what his congregation is, right? And and and, and I think it, part of that is that a pastor should be careful of not wanting to have so much money that he ends up li living an opulent life because. He's been called to preach to, that we sacrifice ourselves for Christ, and if he's living optimally, then what is he sacrificing, right? So I think that, and again, I'm not against, you know, if you got a huge church and making good money, that's all fine and dandy, but we've got, those are things we need to think about. You know, we, we shouldn't expect the pastor to have to scrape together every, you know, dime and nickel and fine when we, when the church has plenty of money. But neither should a pastor uh, be set above us and be making more money than I think is seemingly for his um, office that he's called. But that's just my way of, of, of applying those things. So Timothy also reminds us there in our text that we just looked at 
that not just everyone has the right to be supported, but those who labor well are those who do their job biblically. Those who are not sound biblically or show themselves to be in it for the money should have no right to be supported. If, if they haven't met the qualifications, they have no right to be supported as well. They haven't been called. And so I'll finish up this this uh, these thoughts by saying that I think we can also apply this in that a church is required to support those that minister to it as a church and not just everyone who wants your support uh, is legitimate. In other words, I knew, I knew when I wrote that down, it was kind of an awkward way of saying it. But in other words, we are always getting calls from people who are you know, I mean, I think most of them are legitimate. They're, they're being called to the mission field. They're looking for support from us. And we have our missionaries. We support who we can. But we're not required to support everybody who wants support. We are required, first of all, to take care of our needs. And then we support those as we can. And so I think that that would, be, would fall under some of these things as well. And I would say that we are not to... If we don't have the money to do something, then we don't have the, we don't do that. In other words, I don't feel it's right, biblical, proper for us to have bake sales in order to get people to give us money so that we can do what we got to carry on the work of the Lord. The Lord will supply what He wants us to do, and if He doesn't supply it, then we don't do it. We don't spend it. I don't want the I don't want the money from the world. Uh, and, and we need that in order to continue this work. And again, you think about all the ministries out there, even good ones, who are constantly asking for money from those out there to send to them. And I'm not saying it's wrong to send good min- ministries money if you've got it and if you are so led, as long as it's not robbing from the local church. But um, the problem is, is that why do you have to get money from other people if you don't have the money, don't spend it. There's just a principle there that a lot of people need to learn just in their own personal finances. So these are some things, again, Christians are to maintain a testimony, and part of that is in the way they use the money. So these are just some things to think about. And it's and again, it's important that we don't, that we always realize that our obligation is to support the church first, and then with extra money we can give to other needs, and that's great. We do that. We want to do that. But a church that can't count on consistent financial support from its members is going to have a hard time uh, maintaining itself, right? And that's those are just obvious things. Okay, so we're almost done. Here. Just want to mention the last three verses here, twelve through fourteen. Let's skip twelve for a second. In verses thirteen and fourteen. Paul moves on to one more example where he says, Nevertheless, ye have not made use of this right, but we endure rather than put an obstacle in the way of the great thirteen. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering? Again, he borrows from the Old Testament law and talks about the Levites were fed enough often, the priests especially, by the food that they got in their service, right? 
So again, he's saying there's, that wasn't just done for the Levite's sake, but God was doing that so that there's a principle of this kind of support. And then he finishes in verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And we're immediately saying, well, where in the world, when did that happen? When did Jesus speak on this? Well, remember in Luke 10, 7, and remain in the same house, and he's sending out the 70, right, to go out, they remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. So right there it is, right? Then he says, do not go from house to house. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think what he's saying is that um, when you're at a place that this is, many people take care of you, you take it good or bad, much or small, you can be satisfied. Don't say, you know what, I'm not getting enough here, I'm going to go find me a house to make a little more money, get a little bit more. Right? No. Don't go from house to house looking for something better. In a sense, I say it's good for a pastor to remember that. I, this is a church I'm at. I'm not leaving this church because well, there's a bigger church out there and they need a pastor, I can make more money. No, that that is a motivation that is that needs to be suspect. Don't go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and receive you, read what is set before you. Kids, right? Parents, heal the sick in it, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, I think the idea is not just they don't listen to what you're saying, but they don't even want to take care of you. They don't, they don't consider what you're doing important enough. Go into a street, say to them, even the dust of our town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, at the beginning of the kingdom of God has come here. I say you to be more venerable on that day to that town. So, pretty strong words for those towns that don't even, they don't just reject the truth, but they like the messengers. God says, there's judgment awaiting. So, yeah, Jesus spoke about it. And he was pretty, he had something to say about it that was pretty interesting, right? Well, we skip verse 12, and I always skip verse 12 because that's the obvious point in all this. Again, so let's just read that and with that we'll be done. Let's read 11 and 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And that's exactly the point he made in chapter 8. If you are trying to get your weaker brother to do something he's not ready to do, you are putting an obstacle, a stumbling block before him, you are disregarding him, you're not building the kingdom of God, you're turning down the kingdom of God, and here is me living, putting feet to what I've been telling you. And so just a very great illustration by Paul. But the greater lesson for us is, I don't want to do anything that's going to hurt you. We're here to build each other up. And I am willing, hopefully, by the grace of God, to give up anything for that end. Only by the grace of God. Alright, we'll stop there to do the food and then, uh,
brother, Jeff, would you close us in prayer and ask those blessings for the uh, food? Yes, Father, we thank you for this day. 